1: The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlaz
1: Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Invasive species have been a staple of horror for a long time. In a sense, a vampire often comes into communities like an invasive species, slowly expanding its influence and growing its legions of followers, sometimes exponentially. The 1962 film Day of the Triffids is loosely based on the novel by John Wyndham and follows what happens in England when the country is invaded by carnivorous plants. But these scenarios of new species coming into our ecosystems and wreaking havoc are not all science fiction. Unfortunately, they're often horror. Perhaps no country in the world better exemplifies this than Australia, for a variety of unfortunately misguided schemes to use imported animals to various purposes have left the native fauna and flora overwhelmed by unchecked populations of foxes, rabbits, and the subject of today's episode...
0: Monster Talk.
1: Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Stephen Johnson of the University of Florida about the invasive species known as the cane toad. They're a frighteningly resilient species of toad that breeds aggressively and excretes toxic fluid from zit like glands on their back. You can check the show notes for pictures. While they're definitely more harmful than a mere nuisance, I can't help but be impressed with their astonishing biological arsenal. Well, I say that now, but Australia isn't the only country they've invaded, and it may not be long until they join the Fire Ant, the Armadillo, and the Coyote as species that have all shown up unexpectedly in my home state during my lifetime. Special thanks to Karen Stolzno for putting this interview together. We hope you enjoy it.
0: Monster dog.
1: All right. Welcome to Monster Talk, Stephen Johnson. Stephen is uh, an associate professor in the Department of Wildlife, Ecology, and Conservation at the University of Florida. Now, that's in Florida, right?
2: (laughs) That would be Florida. That would be Gainesville, Florida, North Central Florida. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I've been through Gainesville many times, and a friend of the show, Stacey Sharp, hails from there. Nice. Uh, And... uh, that's sort of like in the northern central
2: part, not too far from the state line. North of Orlando, about a two-hour drive if you drive 80 miles an hour.
0: Stephen, I watched a documentary on cane toads a couple of years ago. And having grown up in Australia, I'm very familiar with, with cane toads and the problem that have become in uh, some parts of the country. So for quite some time, we've been wanting to do an episode on cane toads. And when I Googled cane toads, you came up. So, uh your 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 uh, lab at the university of florida so um maybe if you could begin by telling us a little bit about the the johnson laboratory at at uh, the university of florida
2: yeah so uh so i'm a native floridian i've you know i've been in florida pretty much all my life with a few exceptions at forays As a matter of fact sabbatical in australia a number of years ago but uh So my my students and I, I do a lot of teaching and outreach, and uh, research is conducted through collaborators and my students. And uh, students frequently study non-native and invasive species, and these range from anything from rhesus macaque monkeys to Cuban tree frogs, which are native to the Caribbean and are introduced and invasive in Florida, as well as the, the cane toad, which is not native to Florida, not native to Australia, and it's invasive in both places. And I actually had a a postdoc from Australia who was here up until a couple months ago and we found a lot of new information on cane toads in Florida that uh, uh, is different from what uh, what has been found in Australia in some regards and also similar. So uh, just to have a lot of interest in non-native species and uh, teaching people about them and uh, yeah so cane toads are kind of near and dear to my heart. They're little <laughs> monsters I'm very fond of but it's a love-hate relationship.
0: I'm sure.
2: <laughs> it,
1: it, a sabbatical in Australia, is that like an out-sabbatical?
2: That is it, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's I terrible. Took, I, I took nine months off, and I went to Australia to learn about their incredible uh, fauna. They're, they don't have any native toads in Australia, which is probably why mm-hmm. the can't cause so many issues. Ooh, that's
1: weird, though. Mm-hmm. Why, do they have any native amphibians at all?
2: Yeah, they've got some native frogs. So there's three mm-hmm. major of amphibians, there are the frogs or the anurans, there are the salamanders or the urodeles as they're sometimes called, and then Sicilians
1: never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line.
2: <laughs> which are this sort of worm-like, elongate, uh, slender, snake-looking type of amphibian. And Australia only has frogs. Whereas here in Florida, North America, we have frogs and salamanders, and then if you go to the tropics, like let's say go down to Brazil, you'd have Sicilians and frogs and salamanders. But so, but but even though they have frogs, there's no native toads in uh, in the the family that the cane toad is in in Australia, and that's probably why they're such an an issue there, and they have been a major yeah. for the Aussies, unfortunately.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I'm sure we'll get a, a lot into that tonight, um, but how did you get an interest in cane toads to begin with?
2: Well, my interest, uh, I, I, I loved turtles as a kid. I love biology. And, uh, you know, going up, went to undergraduate, graduate school, PhD, working with sea turtles initially, then a salamander. And I was working for the, here in Florida for the U.S. Geological Survey as a research wildlife biologist. And I was working on the Amphibian Research and Monitoring Initiative, ARMI, which is a federal program to study and monitor uh, amphibian populations throughout the U.S., mainly on public land, and I was getting emails from uh, from friends and colleagues at the University of Florida where I got my PhD about Cuban tree frogs, and sort of that piqued my interest, and so I started sort of delved into it there and that was my entrance into working with non-native and invasive species and the the Cuban tree frog is it's it's a monster in Florida a little monster in its own right and that just sort of led to other things and eventually you know cane toads came on my radar and I became really interested because I was getting emails and calls from people who were having problems with cane toads and I thought well this mm. is something I need to uh I need to address from a from a research and a teaching and outreach perspective great you perfect for this episode
1: i know we've talked a lot about biology on, over the decade we've done this show and one of the things that i find really interesting is that the, the distinctions that humans try to do to put animals into groups so we talk a lot about uh, the phylogenetics and how their you know taxonomy and those sort of classifications but toads and frogs, like I grew up learning the basic distinction, but I'm not so sure there is the distinction that I think there is. Can you talk about the current thinking around the difference between a toad and a frog?
2: All right. Well, I, this and this comes up a lot, you know, and you're right. We, we as uh, as humans and as biologists, I think we like to compartmentalize things and organize them in a, in a framework that we can understand. And uh, people often say, oh, you know, uh, they talk about toads and frogs or salamanders and newts is another example. But the bottom line is, is a toad is just a specific type of frog. All toads are frogs, but not all frogs are toads. Just like a newt is a specific type of salamander. All newts are salamanders, but not all salamanders are newts. So toads in general, at least the ones that we have in Florida and North America, Tend to be stout-bodied, terrestrial. They have a little drier uh, skin than uh, you know than some other than than other frogs, even though they will dry out and desiccate if they're in uh, really dry conditions. And they're warty, and the uh, like <laughs> a cane toad has these big paratoid glands. So all amphibians have very glandular skin, but the bottom line is, when you talk about a toad, it's just a particular type of uh, particular type of frog.
1: We'll probably ask okay. a lot of questions like that.
2: axolotl yes we should have we should have warned you about the puns being a science nerd i like that's a that's great Uh, i've got a frog or i've got a frog joke for you later if you'll indulge me so
1: yes absolutely you're entitled to whatever you need to do so Uh,
0: so could we start with some of the basics about cane toads uh maybe some information about their their biology and where they're from
2: Sure. So they're they're native to uh, Central and South America, uh, you know, down into Brazil. They they actually do get into the United States in very extreme southern Texas. Uh, they like uh, they need to be near water, like many uh, many frogs. They lay eggs in like t- many toads, they lay eggs in long string strings, and uh, and they have a free living aquatic tadpole stage. And uh, the male the male calls to attract the females, like in many frogs. Although there are some, there and, you know, there's some frogs I mentioned that have a tadpole. There are some frogs that lay their eggs terrestrially, and there there's no tadpole stage. But like the sort of standard frog that most frogs that most people think about, uh, they have tadpoles that have to develop in water. Uh, interestingly enough. Unlike many frogs, the cane toad, uh, the the life history, the the eggs, the tadpoles, the juveniles, and the adults are all toxic. The adults are the most toxic. Uh, uh, they tend to be more terrestrial. They'll burrow down with their the rear feet. They're a generalist predator, feeding on uh, all kinds of invertebrates. Although a big cane toad could easily take a small vertebrate, like a like a small mouse or a small snake. Uh, mm-hmm they're, you know, like all frogs, they have beautiful eyes. If you've never gazed into the eyes of a frog before, I would encourage you to do that. Look into my eyes. Look. So even have <laughs> a redeeming feature. They do have beautiful eyes, like most, most other frogs. But, uh, you know, they, and they have their native range, like I said, a very broad native range that, they're, mm-hmm. that they cause no problems, but they've been introduced and become invasive many places. They like to they they're they're spurred to breed when it's at least in in Florida and Australia too when it's warmer and it's wet out because as amphibians they have permeable skin and they'll lose moisture if it's too dry out, and uh, so that's a little about you know a little bit about their 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 biology.
1: Great. Well, now my understanding is that they're also toxic.
2: Yep, they have so. Toads in the family Bufonidae, and that's the that's the family the cane toad is in going back to the phylogenetics or the, you know how we compartmentalize organisms to to you know to understand hopefully how they're related. That's that's why we, we you know we we put them in groups. And so any any toad or any frog that's in the same family, we would presume evolutionary speaking is, is more closely related than one that is in a different family, and one's in the same scientific genus. So every uh, you know every organism. <clears throat> on the planet follows the classification that was developed well over 100 maybe 200 years ago by the scientist uh, Linnaeus and uh, so they all have a genus in this species and so the genus that first part of that name if they're in the same genus they're more closely related we hope evolutionary you know, evolutionarily speaking so they're in the family Bufonidae, and they have these large particularly cane toads, have these really large glands on Shoulders called paratoid glands and it's this large gland that's a, an accumulation of a bunch of poison ducts and if that gland is put under pressure it will literally squirt out like you know like literally you're popping a, a zit you squeeze <laughs> that gland under pressure and this very viscous thick bufotoxin will actually squirt out and that is the poison that's the poison that the toad yields that's this that's this little monster's uh, it's 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 weapon and and the issue is if a if a an animal like a dog here in Florida or Australia, many of the the native mammals, if they bite a toad, uh, and it squirts that thick viscous toxin out, that can that can spell trouble for the animal that's bitten, and possibly sometimes cause death.
0: Mm-hmm. Even to humans, in some cases. Humans, I it- know,
2: and I don't know the details sir, but from what I've seen, you mentioned the uh, there's two of these canes. Toads doc, t- cane toad documentaries. And I've seen one and it's, you know, it's pretty campy and, you know, sort of cultish, but the information by and large is correct. And I, I've heard that it can cause temporary blindness and uh, and actually cause hallucinations. And I believe in Queensland, Australia, the state of Queensland, cane toad toxin is considered a controlled substance even, or it was at one time.
1: <laughs> I was wondering about that. I know, I know some people do. There are toads that people lick for hallucinogenic effect but also i was curious about is it toxic to your skin or does it have to be ingested obviously if it gets in your eyes that sounds like a bad
2: yes so it's a poison rather than a venom so i you know like a venomous snake bites you and injects a venom a bee stings you and injects a venom the toads are not venomous they're poisonous by that also they're toxic so you want to avoid your pet your dog encountering a cane toad whether you're in australia or florida or wherever they are that's that can be a bad thing but yeah so they're poisonous or they're toxic to a to a pet that ingests it you know and the the toad that that gland that paratoid gland has to be under pressure to squirt it out although a a stressed toad can sort of ooze that but unless unless that that gland is under pressure they can't squirt it so you know you don't have to worry about a cane toad hopping up to you and sort of, you know, rearing up on its rear legs and squirting you in the eye with its with its uh, with its poison. It can't do that, but it will ooze out, and it's mainly again if it's under pressure. And it can squirt, you know, uh, you know, several feet. I I made the mistake of squeezing or expressing a tan- cane toad gland at a talk one time I was giving on <laughs> in Florida. And the people in the front row, I was like, whoa, that went a lot further than I thought. I'm so sorry. Needless to say, I did not do that again. So, we have a native toad here in Florida called a southern toad that also has these glands. And after handling a bunch of them one night and knowing they were getting their their uh, paratoid gland uh, toxin on me, I tasted it just out of curiosity. It was quite, uh-huh. it was quite bitter. I didn't see, you know, sure. no <laughs> rainbow effects. I didn't, you know, I didn't. No. Thing off of it, but I, I was just you know, scientific curiosity, so I gave it a taste. It was bitter, and I assume a predator would taste that bitterness as well.
0: Good on you for trying. <laughs> <laughs> I well, hear God. that, uh, I hear in Australia that crows know that they're they're uh, the cane toads have this this poison on their backs, and so they flip them over and eat their bellies instead.
2: Uh, crows are so. max same thing mm-hmm. here, there. There's certain animals that know how to deal with them but yep. uh, flip them over go through the the underbelly you know and you can avoid those big toxic glands for sure yeah
0: so you've already uh, mentioned that uh, cane toads have come to be invasive species in florida and in australia uh, i guess we should talk about a few of these examples i think the case in australia is particularly interesting can you tell us a little bit about that
2: Yeah. Well, first let me back up. And so we're, you know, we use the term invasive species and I always like to define that because different people have, different you know, concepts in their mind, what it is. So my loosely the definition I follow is an invasive species is a species of animal. And it's, it's, it's geographically, you got to put into context because in their native range, cane toads are not invasive. They're native there, but in their introduced range where they have been moved to by people, Either accidentally or on purpose. And in Florida, both cases was on purpose. Particular I mean Florida and Australia, particularly in Australia, they were introduced there on purpose w- with the uh, you know, with the concept that they would control the sugar cane grubs, which they did not do. So people introduced this cane toad, this toad to Australia. It's not native to Australia, it was brought there by people. And then an invasive species is one that's introduced outside of its native range, either intentionally or unintentionally by people, where it does or has certainly has the potential to cause negative environmental co- uh, impacts, have negative impacts on the economy where it's been introduced, or and or have negative impacts on human welfare and human quality of life. Mm-hmm. And certainly in Australia, it has had major uh, environmental impacts. Uh, Cause local declines of species such as qualls, which is this really fabulous, small, uh, cat-like marsupial, as well as declines of uh, some uh, uh, crocodiles, freshwater crocodiles, as well as uh, some of Australia's frog-eating snakes. It's had negative economic impacts on Australia as well because there's been a lot of money spent on studying the cane toads, doing research to try to figure out how they can be trapped and removed and also doing research to understand about them. And no doubt it's had negative impacts on human quality of life. When, when Aussies have a dog uh, that attacks one, a pet dog that either has to, you know, incur a cost to go to the veterinarian or your dog dies, that's a major negative impact on you. In Florida, it's more of a socioeconomic thing. The the My view now, and, it, you know, that might change as time passes, but – They don't really invade bushlands or natural areas so much in Florida as they do in Australia. But in Australia, so they were brought in in the 30s to control cane grubs, brought from Mm -hmm. Australia, released at several sites in Queensland, and have since just spread all over the place. And they've been really, really interesting uh, study species for a guy named uh, Dr. Rick Schein. He and his students have published probably hundreds of papers on cane toes, and they've looked at evolution, impacts, all kinds of really interesting uh, studies that have come about. So that's a little bit of a silver lining. They've sort of been a, an unintended, you know, monster natural experiment in Australia.
0: <laughs> and what's the population like? Do you have any idea? Because I think originally they just re- released a few of them, didn't they? And then they thought they had some success initially, and then they released 50,000 or 60,000. And nowadays, I have no idea how many of there.
2: Yeah, I think what it was is there were animals that were brought over by, you know, back in the 30s. You know, we weren't as global an economy as we are now brought over by ship from Hawaii and then released at several places in Queensland. Uh, one, there's a, a site south of uh, south of Cairns, which is a very – or people will pronounce it Cairns because that's how the, – the folks from the U.S. at least because that's not – We say so, Cairns? <laughs> yeah, it's Cairns. It's Gordon, it was in Gordonvale. And there's actually a small park there I've been to a number of times with, uh, with my students on study abroad. And there's a mural talking about the story of the cane toad. But so they were introduced there in several other places. And those original toads just, they're, they're very prolific. So a large female might lay 30,000 eggs at wow. one time. And you know, all, if, if, if a good portion of those tadpoles survive, that's a huge bump in the population. And then they breed, you know, and so on, and 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 they just expand. And the the, the cane toads in Australia, and Australia is about the size of the continental US. And so yes. if, you were, if you know the US, you know, you think about it, okay, they would have been introduced around North Carolina, north of North Carolina. That's roughly if you superimpose Australia over uh, the United States. But in but they would have spread literally as far across as the Dakotas if you were thinking about Australia as the US and almost as far south as Georgia in the US and Australia, that's way over across the top end and uh, uh, the Northern Territory into Western Australia and then Mm -hmm. heading far south, south of Brisbane, you know, down towards Sydney. And there's an invasion front where the toads move very rapidly and they have, they, they hop farther, they hop faster, they have, they have a body style that's more adapted through evolution to dispersing than the animals in the more established areas. So it's been a really, really interesting yet sad situation in Aust- in Australia from a scientific standpoint. Extremely, extremely interesting and and, uh, and uh, the subject of a lot of research. But also, you know, the major impacts on that unique Australian fauna that has just been, been plagued by feral and invasive species be they foxes or cats and then cane toads, so there's such a problem there. I'm glad they're not as big of an issue here in Florida right now, but there's still a concern. There's still a concern for us, no doubt.
1: Statistically, to get those numbers, do they have to do a lot of tadpolling?
2: <laughs> <laughs> there's been a lot of work tadpolling, Yeah. <laughs> and the numbers of animals, I don't think anyone can can answer that question. How many are there in Australia? You know. M- millions if not billions and the, uh, here in Florida probably uh-huh. millions you just it's it's so difficult people say well how many are there it's so difficult to answer that question <laughs> sure, sure. sure sure sorry <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a statistical <laughs> challenge. I, I know.
2: Yeah. Census. How many people are there in the U.S.? Well,
0: yeah, you need know. a cane toad census. <laughs>
1: yeah. You have to use all your senses to get the answers. Exactly. So, <laughs>
2: can't go cool. knocking on people's doors and say, "How many cane toads do you have living in your yard?" That's exactly. So, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah.
1: legally, a, well, legally. Yeah. So. yeah. <laughs>
2: there's there's, he, there's heaps of them, as they would say in Australia. He, but you he, know, he, Florida's yeah, got a lot that makes of. sense.
1: I mean, you, Florida also. Is having some big problems with the uh, Burmese pythons, right? I mean, they're you've yeah, so, you got all kinds of interesting problems. It's, it's not—I mean, it's interesting. It's parallel, I guess, in a lot of ways right. to what's going on in, in Australia.
2: Florida is uh, is the global epicenter of introductions of herpetofauna, and by that I just mean <laughs> amphibians and reptiles, mainly reptiles. The cane toad is is one of a uh, you know only about half a dozen of established and breeding species of frogs, but we have got about three times as many introduced non-native established inbreeding species of lizards in Florida than as we do native species of lizards in Florida we've got Burmese pythons we've got tegu lizards you know and uh, and we've got you know lionfish off our coast as, yeah iguanas
1: got, in the in the keys yeah
2: yeah all these kinds of things and a lot of it you know with the with the cane toads the invasion pathway was intentional introduction for biological control. But the more recently, it's be, the pet industry, the pet trade, importing animals for the pet trade is something that Florida and the U.S. really needs to crack down on. The Australians do a great job of that. They don't allow yeah. you to bring things in, but they've learned yeah. from their mistakes of the past. We haven't.
0: Uh, you'd mentioned that cane toads are dangerous to crocodiles and snakes in Australia, and I'm just wondering, how does that work? How's that possible? I thought that it'd be the other way
2: around. Yeah, it's just that, you know, so Australia, Australia is such an awesome place. So Australia was part of, you know, when, you know, back in the day, you know, millions of years ago, the, as, as best we can tell, all of the, the terrestrial continents were together in a big supercontinent called Pangea. So Right now we need to we in a in a in a metaphorical sense we need we we need to reunite Pangaea. We need to bring everyone from r- the world together and realize, hey, we're on one planet, we're one people, we have to solve our problems together. But I digress. So Pangaea broke up, and there was some northern continents and there was the southern continents. And the southern continents were part of this big land mass called Gondwana. And Australia broke off from Gondwana, from South America and even Antarctica, and it drifted alone in splendid isolation for millions of years. And as it did, so when it when it broke off, it, it took a subsample of the Gondwana fauna with it. And then you had a lot of unique evolutionary history of mammals there. That's why you had in Know, the marsupials become so diverse, and you have the you know the monotremes right. that are there in Gondwana in Australia, New Zealand, you no, you know nowhere else, and and or I should say sorry, right north of there in, uh, in Papua New Guinea, and so you have this fawn in Australia that did not evolve with a toxic prey item like the cane toad, and therefore you would think, oh, you know how could a cane toad kill a snake? You know a large snake or a crocodile? It's because those native Native animals in Australia have not come to recognize the cane toad is toxic, and they don't Mm. have a physiology to be able to deal with that toxin. Whereas Mm. I think one of the reasons in Florida why it hasn't been an issue or possibly is that a lot of our native mammals and our native reptiles have evolved with a more closely related native species, and they either know to avoid them, or they've evolved the, you know, the physiological mechanisms to deal with their toxins. So that's, you know, that's that's my best guess as to okay. as to why they well, can kill well, a crocodile.
1: That's that's really interesting. So we've talked about how corvids can learn to flip the toads to avoid the. And they're
2: smart, crows and jays, they are smart birds. Yeah, really smart.
1: but but other animals, if I understand what you're saying, they have a couple of vectors towards dealing with this one would be to develop toxicity resistance right and that that would be a slow change over time Uh, clearly some natural selection at play right (laughs) but the other one would be um to figure out as a species how to recognize and I, i like how to recognize the toads as toxic and avoid them and that seems like that would also be something like if, if the animals don't have the mental facility to communicate to each other, like some of these birds do, how, how you know, is that something that, that is also naturally selected for a preference against it? Yeah,
2: I think it is. And I, I, I recall reading some research in Australia and then the, the, the Aussies are, you know, they're, they're incredibly resourceful and creative people. And I, I'm pretty sure I've seen in the literature where there's been some sort of aversion training, to try to teach some Australian, you know, animals, I think in a captive situation, but maybe even extending this, and you guys could probably, you know, do some Google searching of the literature to see this, but but actually doing this maybe with wild animals, and there has been some, uh, I think, evidence to show that that populations of, of Australian animals that have encountered cane toads, you know, you'll have the number of more aggressive ones, and, you know, for the selection to occur, you got to have a lot of individual variation, ones that, you know, attack, you know, just full on might die but then ones that are a little more sheepish you know they might have a bad experience but not die and then learn to avoid them and so that kind of evolution i believe is occurring and i believe the australians are actually using that to their advantage to try to you know sort of train if you will some of their native fauna to avoid the toads
0: step into the world of power loyalty
2: Some people enjoy
0: the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum
1: physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't
2: understand. That's our yeah. whole show.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at Pod and Wagon.
0: My, I had no idea about that, but uh, I grew up in Sydney, and I never saw one the the whole time that i was there uh but my mother lives in queensland on the sunshine coast Mm. and uh i mean you see them everywhere often you see desiccated ones around Um, occasionally you'll see a a live one and they do they are much bigger than they are physically they're um I, i don't know if you've i'm sure you've encountered them in the wild but they are really aggressive and they like to Bloat themselves up and to challenge you. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're mean bastards.
2: <laughs> yeah, they are. They are no doubt. They're little monsters, you know. And they'll. Yeah. So you know, if they're if they're if you pick one up, it will swell up. Oh with God, them. no. And no. That's, <laughs> that's a standard, you know, frog or toad thing to make yourself be larger to a to a predator. But I've seen I've seen lots of a lots of them in Australia when I've been traveling around. You know, under lights or in caravan yeah. or. or RV parks, you know, or just hopping around in the yards, you know, where folks that I've uh, friends that I've stayed with, I've seen them yeah. there. I've seen them in Hawaii as well. It was the first the first amphibian native amphibians in Hawaii. But first thing I saw in Hawaii from an amphibian standpoint was a cane toad, and unfortunately we don't have them up here in in Gainesville, Florida yet. But they're from about Orlando, Central Florida, you know, south, and uh, and people are learning more and more about them because. Here in Florida, they seem to really do they do the best in human modified environments. Whereas in Australia, they'll do good in in, uh, in you know suburban areas as well mm-hmm. in the bush. You know, they'll they need they need water sources. So there's research that would suggest that, you know, because Australia is a very arid country, so the the troughs or the the tanks are basically the holes in the ground that the Aussies dig. To uh, for for water for the cattle has facilitated the movement of of cane toads in Australia. So there it's the same as you know humans have modified the environment a lot to the you know and these you know these invasive monsters you know take it take advantage of that uh, many mm-hmm. of them. do.
0: Yeah, I remember one day uh, just reversing the car at my mother's place, and uh, one saw us and just challenged the car. Just blew itself up and. Oh. Was
2: ready, ready to fight. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a, there's a great, uh, these two great documentaries. You know, cane toads, an unnatural history. And there's <laughs> a little girl that lives in the tablelands outside of Cairns, and she has this massive toad she calls Dairy Queen. And the toad is, it's just huge. I mean, she's a little girl in the video. This is a massive toad, the size of a dinner plate, and a toad that yeah. no. <laughs> these really big poison glands you know and if, and if a dog attacks that you know and bites that gland it's you know for, forget it for the dog and then there's the second documentary you know King, I think it's called cane toads of the conquest it's it a lot of the same characters are in there it's really really interesting to see they're, they're great they're great documentaries I show those to students in, in the in my invasion ecology class and it they're they're entertaining but they're, they've got a lot of fact facts built in there and you can learn a lot about cane toads and their biological and their socio economic impacts in the you know in australia it's really they're, they're really great that's, that's like almost you know that you you got to put a link to to those if people can get those it's really it's really that's great awesome. in the area of covid the era of covid when we're all stuck at home screw netflix let's watch some cane toads
1: <laughs> well i i know uh when you see something smaller than you behave in a way where it's not afraid. It can be very disconcerting even to a human. These these guys, these cane toads, they bow up when they're in defensive mode. So Is, is, is that, I mean, this is not really a joke. Is, is that leading to a lot of people mowing them with their lawnmowers? That kind of thing is, is,
2: I don't know, I don't know about that, but they will, you know, if they feel threatened, they'll, you know, they'll suck in air and they'll sort of stand up and they can lean towards you. They just trying to look more intimidating, you know, Mm. just like a lot of snakes in the U S will, will puff up, they'll, they'll flare out their jaws. They make themselves look more intimidating. It's just, that's their mechanism to try to protect themselves, you know, sure. uh, and you know, and some people will be you know put off by that. You know, those of us who are out looking for them, I'm like, oh, good, you're not going to run or try to crawl away from me. You. You're easy to pick up, or you're make you know make yourself a better you know a subject for a for a photo. But it's just you know, it's just their mechanism to ch- to try to protect themselves. Sure. Is, is what's going on.
1: Well, I know here, like, we've got, um, uh, it, I don't know if they're really invasive because they've been in the United States, but the, the, well, you probably have them there, too. In fact, I know you do. Um, we've got uh, armadillos now. That was not a thing when I was a kid. I mean, they existed, From but Texas. they weren't in my state. Uh, and now they've, they've made it into Georgia. So I know they've, we saw them all over Orlando when we were at Disney right. a few years ago. And um, the, unlike the opossum, which has the bad habit of uh, its defenses to pass out, uh, not good if you're on the road. The armadillo's nope. defense is apparently to hop up, and it, yes. which, which I guess would be great if it didn't put it right in the grill of the car. Um, so I,
2: I've, had, I've experienced that, Tried to straddle a possum with a Jeep I had one time, and it, it was scared and it jumped and hit the underside of my Jeep. And when I was coming out from work, there it lay, belly up on the road. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, animals are maladapted, just like the Burmese pythons. Mm-hmm. When it gets, you know, on the rare instance that we get a really cold snap in Florida— the pythons are coming at they will come out into the sun to try to bask to warm up but then it gets too cold for them and they can succumb if they would just hang out underground they would avoid that so they're sort of maladapted to deal with that cold so but it worked good where they were native doesn't work so good here but you know it it hasn't done anything to curtail their populations they're, they're you know they're 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 proliferating in the uh, in the Everglades in in South Florida. And they've had major, you know, major impacts. They're a really, really bad invasive species in Florida, without a doubt.
0: Uh, So I know that there seem to be a lot of urban legends about cane toads. Uh, I know in the the sort of Brisbane, Sunshine Coast, Gold Coast areas, that people think that you can freeze them to kill them and that they're pouring salt on their backs. Lots of different ways to get rid of them. Are you aware of any of these urban legends and what actually does work to eradicate them?
2: I am not, but I'm not surprised to hear them. So I do advocate, uh, you know, I've got a series of outreach, you know, documents and little videos I've done and I educate people here in Florida. And I would do the same in in Australia, you know, that you, you know, it's not that, you know, it's, it's not the toads fault or the Cuban tree frogs fault or the pythons fault, so to speak that they're here, but they shouldn't be here. And to protect our our economies and our native environments, and to be an advocate for our native species, I encourage people to capture and, and humanely euthanize Cuban tree frogs and cane toads. And with cane toads, there is research done out of Australia, again by this by this professor Rick Shine. Uh, he teamed up with some neurologists, and uh, and they showed that you know from the, the data that they had, the paper that I read, if you would take a cane toad, you would hand capture it. You could just use a you know, a plastic sack that you would get at a grocery store, capture the toad by hand, and if you have them in your yard, you can go out at night and shine a torch if you're in Australia, which is basically U.S. Amer- American for flashlight.
0: For lunch, China yeah. <laughs> out, you know,
2: just decisively grab the toad, turn the bag inside out, tie it shut, and if you're willing to, you know, put it in your refrigerator for a couple hours. And that 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 physically is an, is an anesthetic. It slows down the toad's metabolism and you can put it in the freezer for 24 hours and kill, will kill it, humanely. Or if you wow. cast, you can apply a, 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 a chemical anesthetic, such as a, you know, one that you might spray on your, topically on your skin or for, uh, for rash, uh, poison ivy, or sunburn, or even apply a gel that you would use you know, to deal with toothaches. And that would then anesthetize the toad, and then you put it in the freezer for 24 hours, and it will kill it humanely. Now, a lot of people so wait, don't So, Are
1: you suggesting we novocaine toad?
2: Yes, novocaine <laughs> toad and then freeze it. <laughs> and you know what? It's not going to taint your vanilla ice cream if the toad is fresh. It's not going to – You know, it's no threat to you or your food. You can still eat your frozen pork chops and your pizza. But, you know, that's what I tell folks to do. Some, I
0: can't believe that that's true. I, because I yeah. heard that growing up and, and I thought that was a, a urban legend of some kind. So that's, that's no. amazing. But, but we're
1: speaking here specifically about humanely killing the toad.
2: Yeah. So anything that is rapid and is a sort of peaceful or painless death would be considered humane. But I advocate, you know, the either the chemical or the, yeah, aesthetic followed by freezing. That's what I tell yeah. people because that follows, you know, veterinary guidelines. There's actually a product in Australia called HopStop, that's uh, an anesthetic spray that that is, it has been marketed. I think they had some issues with the cans uh, sort of exploding, but I believe it's still oh, for sale. Geez. And you can <laughs> spray the toads with that. But then in the that's U.S., they're that- you not know, want to put Raid or bleach on them. You don't want it, you know, you don't want the animal to suffer. Right. You want it to no, die, a, no. a, you know, a, a humane death if you're going to kill it.
1: The bleach would ruin the flavor. There's so many things to consider.
0: i guess people eat frogs do people eat
2: toads i don't know if you were you know what i'd be darn sure to take the skin off
1: oh yeah gross (laughs) yeah yeah
2: that's where the poison glands are right i've never i've never tried it i've tried now monitor lizard that's that's an invasive species in florida that one of my uh colleagues uh caught and cooked and it was you know i'm I'm gonna stick with uh you
1: That's that's yeah that that if we started talking about weird things we've eaten we'd be here all night because I have eaten a lot of weird things. Um,
0: yeah, that's for another show. That's I guess. another show. <laughs> 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 so,
1: uh, so I'm very interested. Um, <laughs> this is such a weird. I mean, this must be strange. I apologize, but this sort of hop between these ridiculous jokes and then like serious biological hop. questions.
0: Between. <laughs> yeah, no,
1: I know. It's what we do.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I heard you. I caught you. <laughs> yeah, okay.
1: See, I do actually, okay, I have to, this is an aside to Karen. I actually do understand subtlety, but people don't think that I do. The problem is when I'm subtle, nobody laughs or rolls their eyes or goes,
2: ah. Speaking of that, remember, I've got a frog joke for you, you know. Anytime you want to tell it. Are you ready? Are you
1: asking? Yes. Oh, yeah, go. If you want to do it here, that's
2: perfect. Let's go for it. So, <laughs> what type of soda do frogs drink? No idea. Of course, Croca Cola. Oh, <laughs> thank, thank you for laughing. I oh, really- that's cute. <laughs> I stunned
1: Kath- my wife yesterday. My wife's name is Kathleen. I stunned Kathleen yesterday. I, I walked into the kitchen and said, I've just come for this great invention a mechanical uterus. It's a labor-saving device. <laughs>
0: and, and she repeated that on Facebook and yeah, Twitter. Yeah, she did or... later.
1: But, uh, but her immediate response was I, she was in front of the sink, and I, I really thought she was going to throw up.
2: I think she was the first thing to throw at you, Blake. So,
1: <laughs> so, yeah, it is dangerous to do that in the kitchen where all the knives and stuff are. So. this would be kind of a follow up which would be do we know what predators they do have I mean, in 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 their native world I and mean, we've talked about obviously the birds aren't doing enough in, in australia to keep up with it but uh like w- what animals do successfully eat these uh without too much harm
2: yeah there you know be, would be would be birds who could deal with them uh uh, you know, some mammals again, like I, and I, there's, there was a, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't a natural setting that sort of contrived, but when I had a, I had a postdoc here in Florida within the past year named uh, Dr. Benjamin Muller, and we tested this trap that's uh, produced by a company called ACTA, uh, that's Australian. And it's a, it's a, a cage trap, a metal trap with a steel roof and bottom and it has a, uh, you hang a, uh, a little call lure in there, a little speaker that plays a cane toad call. It also has a little LED light, and it's attached to a, uh, via a long wire to a solar panel that charges it. And when the panel stops sending a charge to, that, to the mechanism in the trap, it signals, hey, okay, it's gotten dark, which is the time cane toads are becoming active. And the lure starts playing the cane toad call with the idea that it attracts females. And, uh, and very rarely, never in Australia did they catch any non-target organisms, only caught toads. And we hardly ever caught any non-target organisms in Australia. But one time we did catch a, uh, uh, an American opossum or a Virginia opossum, you know, uh, Didelphus virginianus. And that thing ate that toad. It didn't go in through the belly. It didn't go around it. It just seemed to consume the whole darn toad without any apparent toxic effects So it didn't need to go around it, around the the toxins. And I'm working on a little small note, of manuscript right now that uh, is uh, sort of summarizing some observations of of Florida snakes encountering the toads. And I've seen a photograph of one of our native uh, water snakes that was dead and it had rotted. And clearly there was a cane toad within its stomach. But I've seen other instances where the where snakes have just consumed them consumed them whole. So, you know, I don't know. Again, evolutionary history. Maybe they have that the, you know they're able to deal with it. But so some mammals we know might be able to consume them whole. Other ones could you know flip them over and go through the belly and uh, eat the you know eat the, the the internal organs and avoid those toxic glands. So, you know, a hungry animal is, you know, is, is, is generally tends to be, you know, pretty persistent and smart. But, you know, I, we just in Florida, we just don't know enough about that, about, you know, the impacts on uh, on native wildlife. It doesn't appear to be much. And it's either one. It's because the cane toads don't invade the natural areas so much like they do in Australia. Uh, that's pro- possibly part of it. And it might also be that uh, you know our species are just able to to deal with the cane toads, like we talked about earlier. They evolved with them when Australia in Australia they haven't. But generally, a larger predator probably just going to attack the whole toad. But it was a really interesting observation that we made of that opossum just consuming the in- entire toad without mm. any kind of ill effects. You know, which was kind of a uh, uh, surprising,
0: amazing. Yeah. And so we were talking about uh, the introduction of cane toads to Australia, um, but could we? Uh, so I'm going back a little bit further into the the, uh, the interview that we've done so far. But I'm just wondering why is it that the cane toads failed to control the grubs? What what went wrong?
2: Well, I think I think it was an ill-fated experiment or ill-fated effort to begin with. So. This whole concept of biological control is using one, you know, animal or organism to control the population of another. And it's, a, it's, it's been used in, uh, for invasive species for a while. And so, for instance, in, uh, introducing mongoose, which is, you know, like a, a ferret, you know, a small carnivore to control whatever it might be, snakes or something. We've learned that vertebrates, vertebrate animals, mongoose, cane toads, whatever, they're really bad biological controls because they are not specialists so while you might have had some cane toads that in some places might have eaten some cane grubs in fact they don't they just weren't at the right place together at the right time and they ate so much more they weren't specific to that so for a biological control to to really work you want it to avoid non-target organisms so you would want to let's say bring in some species of beetle that only eats one species or a small group of plants that are not native in an area. And you don't want it to eat closely related species that are native. And it turns out that cane toads are just very general predators. So while they might have eaten some cane beetles, they did not eat enough of them and they didn't focus specifically on those cane beetles to be effective. And uh, it took a while for us to, you know, for people to, to realize that. And these days, you know, you just don't introduce a, a vertebrae or more of a generalist predator to control anything. It's that, that there's been enough ill-fated experiments for us to finally realize that's that's the wrong strategy to take.
0: I've learned from my mistakes.
2: What year was the cane toad inf- introduced? Do we know? through a lot of a lot of places around the world it was in the 1930s that was sort of the heyday yeah, in Australia so that,
1: i think wasn't that around the same time they introduced kudzu to to Georgia it's like, it's like another invasive species it's like yeah,
2: don't, i don't know the history of that but yeah and it's all over the eastern us and i think it was brought in either to stabilize er, erosion or as cattle food and it just has spread all over the place so. yeah Know. but I mean we do have a lot of great examples of species being introduced and they don't become invasive they stay where they're, they're supposed to be and they're they're valuable economically so it's just we have to do a better job as a society of knowing you know doing the research and knowing all right this is a risk worth taking it's worth we've done the research it shows hey, we can introduce this as a crop plant or an ornamental plant and it's not likely to escape where we put it but uh, you know we're, we're still we're, we're still learning, and uh, our, our past you know mistakes are something we definitely need to take into account before we make decisions like that in the future. Oh, so
1: it just uh, verification. Um, Kudzu came to the US for the first time ever in 1876 for an exposition, wow. but in the 1930s, the Civilian Conservation Corps introduced ah. it for s- s- controlling soil erosion. so yeah. It 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 did. I mean, it also controlled uh, the ability to see pine trees or anything that got in its way. (laughs) It
2: it produces a big a big blanket of green over plants that do not need that blanket.
1: Yes, I I was Mm -hmm. here. Like my first, like my speaking of monsters, my first memory of of just like recurring monster images was near my home when I was a little boy, like not even five. Uh, There was a, a hilltop with a line of pine trees across the top that was completely coated in uh, kudzu. So when we would go home in the evening and the sun was setting, it would look for all the world like a, a line of monsters in some sort of weird, happy Dr. Seussian uh, parade. Uh. It was gorgeous, <laughs> you know. Anyway, I
2: could definitely see that, the silhouette of those trees covered with that kudzu. They look like yeah, these big monsters, yes. you know across the
1: landscape absolutely burned into my memory wow. and it was just like every night i would see that it was just amazing so but let's get a science question in before we go um we've talked before on monster talk about some of the strange and interesting ways that uh gender changes across reptiles and amphibians and i know that like we've talked about alligators and that they're the gender of the of the egg uh, is going to be determined by the temperature that it's laid in and or, or that it's con- went while it's being developed. Uh, can, right. I, I read that cane toads have a, a, a gender swapping thing that can happen. Are you aware of that, or can you talk a little bit about how gender fluidity works in amphibians?
2: I am not familiar with that. I don't. I don't think that's well known in amphibians in in, in general. I certainly have not. I have to go look that up. I do not know about that in cane toads.
1: A quick insert here, the article I was reading was referring to the gender-altering effects of human-made chemicals on the life cycle of amphibians. I misread the article while preparing for the show, and I thought it was talking about a previously unknown gender-swapping ability similar to some fish or the environmentally produced gender changes that some reptiles have. This is not that. But this is the same effect that led to one notable tinfoil hat-wearing philosopher to opine... I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay! And on that chunky spoonful of wisdom, we return to our interview with Dr. Stephen Johnson.
2: But as you mentioned, in crocodilians and turtles, you know... Uh, environmental or temperature-dependent sex determination, so they don't have the sex chromosomes like we have. And then I know in some species of fish, which is just crazy, some reef fish, you know, that I think all are male, and when the largest one disappears, you know, the biggest male becomes a female, you know, and that's just, you know, that's counter to what we think of, you know, uh, as humans, but also, you know, we just, in our society, genders are becoming more the way we think about that is becoming more fluid, so maybe we're becoming more like you know, quote, animals than uh, than we think they're. But I don't I don't know about that in cane toads or amphibians. Like, again, I think it's poorly studied. I'm not to, to check that out.
1: It is interesting. Like even one of our earliest interviews was with biologist Steve Jones, and he he his specialty is uh, slugs and snails, and huh? he told us this thrilling story about uh, the how two slugs will come together um and they're hermaphrodites and i and in a perfect world they would both mate successfully the 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 male of each side would mate with the female of each side but right. it's a real hassle to be the female so one of them will try to bite off the penis of the other, <laughs> so they only it's like non reciprocal. So, but
2: banana slugs, I think, are that way in California,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's it's a, uh, and then there's you know, there's fish that change gender. It's like humans have a really narrow view, like we know what we know, and if it's not that, we get real, mm, that's not right. But yeah, it turns out the yeah. nature's got so many more ideas about what's natural than we do. Yeah. So, there
2: are a okay. number of. Parthenogenetic reptiles oh, like yeah, this,
1: uh, I meant to mention that, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: A little, uh, you know, some some geckos, lizards. There's a little snake called Ramphotyphlops braminus, the flowerpot snake, which has been int- it's probably it might be the most widely distributed reptile in the world because it moves around through, uh, th- you know, inadvertently through movement of ornamental plants. And it's parthenogenetic, where, you know, one individual— it, you know basically produces clones of itself. And so that has the advantage of, you know, if you get moved somewhere else, you only need one of you. But it has a bit of a disadvantage is that you really cut down maybe on the amount of genetic diversity that you can produce. And the more genetic diversity, the more adaptable to change a species is. But clearly this parthenogenetic strategy has worked for a number of a number of species. So yeah. So the bottom line is biology is really, really interesting. It's you know truth is stranger than fiction and the more you know the more we know about you know animals and plants and biology in general the the, the more i think we realize we don't know and we realize what an incredible world that we live in and you know and we need, to, we need to we need to do all we can to save this biodiversity including these monsters you know so we can learn more about them because we might be able to apply what we learn about them to you know to to ourselves and maybe you know help you know come up with therapeutics or you know whatever we, we can just we get insights into into us as humans you know the, the the sort of the animal part of us being uh human and the bottom line is we're just you know we're a really highly evolved animal that's having a really major impact on the planet and uh therefore we we need to you know it's upon us to uh to try to do things to lessen that impact in my opinion
0: beautifully said absolutely and blake is right it's a hassle to be a female. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and I apologize for being a male, it's, you know we're just yeah
1: well, it's certainly a hassle to be a mom I don't i you know i i I can't speak to any of the rest of it, but I've just watched what's happened to my poor wife, and you and you, Karen, and everybody else who has to.
0: What? takes its toll but it, it's worth it well, <laughs> well as a
1: species we really need it so thank you thank you for you and all moms everywhere <laughs> oh,
2: thank you i apologize. should air this on mother's day <laughs> Testosterone is the, that's the hormone that may be the downfall of uh, the human race as we know it so yeah indeed. Uh,
0: well Stephen, we've got a final question for you it's oh. a question we like to ask all of our guests okay. and that is what's your favorite monster
2: Ooh, my favorite monster. Let me think about this. Well, I have to go back to being a kid and uh, I was really intrigued and by, you know, National Geographic, Jacques Cousteau, all this kind of stuff and 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 uh-huh. I, you know, my favorite monster I think would have to be Bigfoot, but not just Bigfoot, the subspecies, quote unquote, that's in Florida and that would be the skunk ape. That's uh-huh. that's, that's my favorite monster. I've never seen one. But I have high hopes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, so they have some sort of gland, too, apparently. <laughs>
2: <laughs> they do smell, and if you want to catch one, lima beans, I've read, is a really good bait. Interesting. I'm not I'm trying to freeze Mom, I them. can't
1: eat these lima beans. I need to feed our Bigfoot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: trapping. That's, why That's I'm a thinking. new one. I haven't heard that. <laughs> Yeah, but it had it had to be bigfoot but specifically the skunk ape that always That's, that always intrigued me as a kid and I'm still intrigued now but I'm fortunate enough to get to study cane toads and you know and other smaller uh smaller monsters so I uh, I'm uh, I'm a very fortunate uh, very fortunate person and scientist Well, I think sure. you know
1: we we're very skeptical but um I think f- on behalf of uh everyone I I really hope that the swamp apes are able to avoid the Burmese pythons and the cane toads
0: monster
1: dog You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stoltzner.
1: You just heard an interview with Dr. Stephen Johnson of the University of Florida. I'll be putting a link to his program at UFL in the show notes, along with some photos of cane toads. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk... We now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Check out our Monster Talk merchandise at monstertalk.org forward slash store, where you can find a variety of cool products to show that you're a next level monster enthusiast. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening.
0: Monster House presentation. And the grand prize winner,
1: the Hypno Toad. All glory to the Hypno Toad. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health
2: facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the US, more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime.